Today begins part four, part four of our journey through the book of Judges. And if you are joining us for the very first time, this would be helpful, informa- helpful information to, to know. The book of Judges starts off in very similar fashion to the book of Joshua. Joshua starts off, Moses, your leader, he's dead. Judges starts off, Joshua, your leader, is dead. And so Israel right away finds themselves in a very transitional period. They've always had a central leader. They've always had a central leader. Ever since they left Egypt, okay, they've always had a central leader. They don't. And obviously that's going to present its own unique challenges to a people who always had that. But what we're going to find in the book of Judges is some of the most self-destructive behavior that you'll see in any Bible story. The central issue in this story is the Canaanization of Israel. And by that, Israel's living around Canaanites, and the Canaanization of Israel is that they're going to pull, they're going to pull God's people away from the Lord. Okay. That's, that's the real issue. We're going to be like God, be set apart, or, or we're going to be like the world. And unfortunately, they're going to be like the world. It's the sad part of the story. And so we're going to see this self-destructive pattern repeat itself constantly. Where Israel will be pulled away from God by the nations around them. And God will raise up foreign nations to oppress them. They'll cry out for help and then God will raise up a judge or a deliverer, and they will drive out the foreign oppressors, and then things will be good for a while. And then the cycle will repeat itself over and over and over again. And so this is where we pick up today. This is our fourth sermon in the book of Judges, starting in verse 6. I'll give you a heads up. This first paragraph is going to be a flashback. So starting in verse 6 of chapter 2, it says this. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done Israel. This is almost a verbatim quote from Joshua chapter 24, 28. And so, besides being a flashback of events that have happened in the past, it seems the narrator intends for this also to be used as a sequel to our story to the events last week, which seems a little strange, but he does that for his own stylistic reasons. And I realize sequels usually follow a certain chronological flow. Okay, if it's 2018, the sequel happens in 2019. He does it a little bit differently here. Okay, the story's happening here and now, and yet he's making the sequel 
pointing us back to events that took place back in Joshua chapter 24. He's doing that to give us a retrospective look at Israel's past commitments in light of what's happening now. Apostasy, infidelity that are currently being described, that are currently happening. And so, look back. Look back during the time of Joshua. Things are going so well, and then there arose another generation who did not know God or what he had done. So the memory of God, the memory of Yahweh, and all the amazing things that, he, that he's done back during the story of Joshua, that memory, in essence, has died with Joshua. It's died with the generation of Joshua. Israel now has really stopped serving God. And of course, this is expressed in their failure to drive out the Canaanites. Another generation arose. They didn't know God. They didn't know what they had done. They're no longer serving God. And that was clear last week. Remember the issue last week? God sends the angel of the Lord, the special messenger, the special envoy, to deliver some very, very important news. It's not good news, it's bad news because the people have been bad. They've failed to drive out all these nations. They're compromising. They're compromising. Oh, we don't, we don't have to drive them out. We can just enslave them and we can just settle in with them. It's not so bad. They're compromising. I think Tanner brought it out in small group. There was, there was like 25 different locations where they did this where they're supposed to drive out the nations, and they're like, eh, we'll just, we'll just sit here and we'll be okay. So God sends his special envoy in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 2, choose them out, says, listen, from here forward, this is how things are going to be. This is how things are going to be, because you guys have dropped the ball. You guys are not as you should be. And of course, they're broken. They're crying their eyes out. They name the place, literally weeping or weepers, and then the sequel comes up today. In a strange rhetorical fashion, he begins telling them, really, of events that happened back in chapter 24. It is the story, if I could use one word, rather, two words and a hashtag. This is the story of the forgotten God. This is the story of the forgotten God. Another generation arose, and they did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. They didn't know. And before you say, well, that, that wouldn't happen to me. I wouldn't have forgotten. Before you say that, I think it's important that you're very careful because there was a time in which Israel said the exact same thing. Oftentimes I think we're hard, unrealistic ideas, views. So oh, that wouldn't happen to me. There was a time that Israel said the same thing. In fact, back in Joshua 24, remember when Joshua delivers his speech? Choose today whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Oh yeah, and all the people responded, yeah, we got this, we're good. And Joshua says, yeah, no, you're not. You're not going to follow him. And they respond, yeah, we will. And he says, okay, we'll see. 
we're seeing right now. I think it's important to think about that. They said the same thing. That's not going to happen to us. Right? Not me, Lord! They might all fall away. Not me! It's not happening to me! The forgotten God? A generation who didn't know Him? i got to think, if that can happen to an entire nation, that can happen to an 18-year-old freshman. Okay, how smart you are. And so, people will ask, Joe, why, why, do you, um, why do you read your Bible? And there's a lot of reasons why I read my Bible. But one of the reasons I read my Bible, guys, is I read my Bible so I can, I can know God. That's why I read my Bible. I also read my Bible to remind myself of God. That's important. Because... I know my heart is no different than their heart, right? My heart is prone to wander. My heart is prone to leave the God I love. And that can happen to a pastor. Just like it can happen to an 18-year-old freshman. Just like it can happen to an entire nation. It can. The story of the forgotten God. The generation who arose who did not know God. Or the works that He had done. And I think some of us in here... You're on your way to joining these people. You're you're on your way right now to joining these self-destructive Israelites who do not know the Lord. And one of the reasons, just one, okay, there could be a lot, but one is directly, directly connected to how spiritually malnourished you are. And, And what's worse, some of you might not even care. Like, you're like, well, I'm good just as long as I'm not physically malnourished. As long as I'm not literally hungry. And I'm hearing Jesus, and he's like, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's why, one of the reasons why I read my Bible every day. You think this can't happen to you? You can forget everything he's done. I grew up, went to a Christian high school, 175 people at my school in Alaska, valedictorian of the class behind me. I remember, crazy smart girl, photographic memory, the works. She said, once in a conversation I had with her, that she didn't read her Bible anymore. I said, why? She said, I've already read it. I know everything it says. Why do I read it? Because my heart is prone to wander. Just like your heart is prone to wander. Just like this entire nation, their heart is prone to wander to God. And soon wandering turns into a generation that arose who did not know God, who did not know what He had done. Oh yes, that can happen to you too. It can happen to any one of us. That's the real threat here. So he continues in verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord who served the Baals. Verse 12. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among 
the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. It's not good. But it raises a question. How does the narrator know? The narrator, Samuel, we're not really sure. I think it's Samuel. But how does the narrator know that what they're doing is evil in the sight of the Lord? How how do we know that? And I think there's a real obvious answer. And the obvious answer is, you can take what God's Word says about God's people, line it up with God's Word, and if it's kind of off course, there's a problem. There's a problem, right? That's the obvious answer. Brother, sister, I'm looking at your life, and listen, like, that's not okay, that's not okay, that's not right. This isn't me giving you a hard time, this is what God's Word is saying. Obvious, maybe. But I think more to the point, how does he know that what they're doing is evil in the sight of God? I think this statement really reflects the author's apparent omniscience. Like the prophets of old, this narrator, this author, he knows the mind of God as a divinely authorized interpreter of these historical events. Through the Spirit of God, the narrator, the author, is informed by God, and therefore he is able to describe Yahweh's evaluation of the Israelites. They did evil in the sight of God. So this isn't just one man's opinion. He is speaking with the authority, just as any prophet of old would speak with such authority. And so we describe the different gods. We have the Baals, we have Asheroth. Asheroth is the god of love and war. Baal, the god of the weather, the god of the storm. They were Canaanite mythology, husband and wife. What I thought was interesting, I learned this. I didn't know this eight days ago. The reference, when you see the bales, when you see the plural being used here of these Canaanite gods, is not a reference to the multiplicity of the gods, but rather to the numerous manifestations of the one God. I'll say that one more time. That was a mouthful. Baal's the god of the storm. And so when we see the plural being used, it's not a reference to multiple deities, but rather it is a representation, rather it's referring to the numerous manifestations of this one God. Baal's the God of the storm, he's the God of the weather. So when we see the plural being used, it's referring to different manifestations of the weather. For you all know it doesn't always rain. Okay? But at the core of this is the essence of Israel's canonization. That's really... the the core of these these verses blocked out here, is the essence of Israel's canonization. They're looking more like the world around them. And that's not good. That's not good at all. Why? They've forgotten God. You seeing some more importance right now? Hopefully. Hopefully. Baal is mentioned a lot in the Old Testament, but for good reason. For good reason. In a society dominated by the agricultural needs, 
You want to have more money in your bank account? Well, you better hope and pray. Whether or not you're religious or superstitious, you better hope and pray that the weather cooperates. And if the weather cooperates and the land is fertile, you've got some more money in your bank account. I mean, this is, let me, I'm bridging a cultural divide here, all right? That's, that's the essence of this. And, and they're not remembering the faithfulness of God. And so they're running and clinging to these other things to meet their needs, to meet their desires. Makes me think today when I'm reading this and thinking about like the economic impact really at the core of this. Applications, I suppose. And I think probably the most apparent one, and I hope it's apparent, It's probably the prosperity gospel. Unfortunately, it's even more dangerous because it's under the label, not of some Canaanite deity, but it's under the label of Christianity. And you will find some of the largest, and I'll intentionally say, for those listening right now, in air quotes, churches in the country. This message of health, wealth, and prosperity that Jesus came to die to give you health, wealth, and prosperity. What's at its core? There's an economic factor. What's at the core with, the, with these p- pagan gods, particularly the Baals, right? The God of the storm, the weather God. I need him to cooperate with me because if he does, the, the land will work out a lot better when harvest time comes and I'll have more money in my bank account. Right? It'll just be so much better. And this is being exported from America all over the world. It is. Uh, you know, guys, you've probably heard me say this before, that one of these guys, he wrote a book called Live Your Best Life Now. John MacArthur rightly commented, he said, the only way that's possible to live your best life now is if you're going to go to hell. That's the only way you're going to live your best life now. And you will find some of the largest, largest churches in this country dominated by the prosperity gospel. There's a guy in here. I'm not going to say his name in case he brings his friends, but he said, Joe, what, what should I tell my friends? I've got friends and coworkers, and they've got these books on their shelves, and they love these guys. And what should I tell them? And I said, tell them to read their Bible. Right? And I meant, there, there, was, there was really no joking behind that. Right? Tell them to read your Bible. Right? Look at the lives of Jesus' disciples. I don't think it's a coincidence that every single disciple, with the exception of John the Elder, lived to die a martyr's death. And so in those churches, they would say, well, they just they need to have more faith, right? I think it takes a great deal of faith to be martyred as his disciples were. A great deal. A great deal more. No, I don't think it was an issue that, oh, if, if the disciples had had more faith, they would have had the, the prosperity gospel. There's, that's the economic factor driving this, right? This is the essence, and I think for the narrator, he's pulling this out for us, of Israel's canonization. Where the world is pulling them away from God. That can happen to us. Our hearts are prone to wander. They are. And yet, I think some of us still come to this text and we would say, not I, Joe. Not I. I wouldn't worship these deities, these pagan gods, and I would say, many of you 
in this room right now already do on a monthly, if not weekly basis. But it's not called Baal or Ashroth. It's called money. It's called a relationship or the idea of a relationship. That's true for a lot of single people. It's many, many things. We call them different things, but they are idols and false gods that we've created for ourselves, and they have the same effect as the Baals and the Ashtoreth to pull our hearts away from God. They make all these promises, and you know what? They never deliver. And then we find ourselves on the wrong side with the creator of the universe. And that's a very bad place to find yourself. And unfortunately, that's exactly the place that Israel will find themselves. So how does God feel about this? He's angry. And he gets angry with his children sometimes. Fathers get angry with their children sometimes. It happens. Verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Verse 15, whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. That's interesting. The hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, And they were in terrible distress. Sometimes things in our lives don't go the way we want them to go. Sometimes they go very poorly. Sometimes there aren't answers. There aren't explanations. There are difficult reasons, specific reasons. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking the sovereignty of God in all things, but give me giving you a specific reason, sometimes that's really hard to do. But sometimes, it's possible, possible, that things aren't going the way you want them to be going because the way you want them to be going is not the way they ought to be going. And God's really trying to get your attention. I'm going to say that again. That was a a, a mouthful. It's entirely possible that things aren't going the way you want them to be going right now in your life because the way you want them to be going is not the way they should be going. And God's trying to get your attention. God's trying to get your attention. I really want this. I really want this. I want, I want this thing. I want this thing. And uh, it seems God's shutting every single door. He's doing you a favor. He's doing you a favor. Well, I don't think they see it that way. And according to the covenantal curses and blessings of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, them, Israel, his people, abandoning Yahweh, absolves God of his responsibility to him. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 2? He says, I will never break my covenant with you. No, but he's, he sure as heck can hit the pause button. He can... Sure as heck, hit the pause button. And the scary thing about this is, in doing so, it renders Israel as his enemy. And I don't want to be God's enemy. I don't ever want to be God's enemy. 
That's the shocking reality for these people. Look at verse 15. When they would march against their enemies, God's hand was against them for harm. And a lot of people say, no, God doesn't harm us. Right? I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. That's another side of God. They have essentially now made themselves God's enemy. That's the reality. They've gotten so far from God. They've forgotten God. And, and the crazy thing is, like when you're God's enemy, you've got a 0% chance. You say, 0% chance? That's stupid. Like Why would you be cool with that? Why would you want to be God's enemy? That's the thing with sin. Sin is stupid. Sin leads you away from the living God. It deceives you. It pulls you away. And that's exactly what's happened. Another generation arose and they did not know the Lord. They did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. See that? Verse 16. Notice his compassion shine through. Then the Lord raised up judges, deliverers, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. You notice his compassion here? Yahweh, Yahweh takes this kind of emergency measures to relieve the people of pain, and that's remarkable. Verse 16 is remarkable. And the reason it's remarkable is because the narrator begins to speak of God's divine mercy without any hint of repentance on the part of the people. See the compassion shine through? See, there's another story in the Bible somewhere. New Testament. It kind of sounds similar too, right? But God shows His love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's, that's the amazing thing here with this text. Sometimes God says, if you do this, you do this. I'll do this. You don't do this. I won't do this. But let me make it clear. Like, God is not bound by any mechanical formula of, of, of blessing or retribution. Or have you not heard that it was said, I will show mercy on whom I show mercy, and I will show compassion on whom I show compassion. Therefore, it depends not upon will or exertion, but upon Him who shows and gives mercy. It's Romans 9, if you didn't know. Do you see his compassion shining through here? The narrator doesn't mention that they've repented. He mentions zero prior repentance whatsoever. And what does he do? He's so merciful. He's so kind. He's so compassionate. Right? God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, compassion. But don't you know, Romans 1.30, that we are haters of God. That's okay. Compassion. Don't you know Romans 5.10? We are enemies of God. That's okay. Compassion. Don't you know Romans 8.7? Even our thoughts are opposed to God. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot submit to God's law. That's okay. Compassion. Mercy. Mercy. 
And that's really good news for all of us in this room. That's the heartbeat of the gospel. Why do we love him? Because he first loved us. That's First John. It's not Joe throwing out random Joe sayings. It's just Joe quoting the Bible. Do you see it shine through? These people are whoring around mercy, compassion. Who acts like that? God. It's good news for some of us in here right now. And yet, as beautiful as verse 16 is, it is short-lived. Verse 17, yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. Maybe it's money, maybe it's relationships, maybe it's the idea of relationships. They whored after them. And they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back. And they're worse, right? They were more corrupt, more evil than their fathers going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. They were too stubborn to let go. Too stubborn to turn aside. We see verse 16, God is so compassionate to them and that should have produced in, in them, it should have produced in them like an, like an overwhelming sense of gratitude for his grace. And it doesn't. They're ungrateful. They're ungrateful little brats who trample his grace, who take this amazing, beautiful gift and flush it down the toilet. Like, I gotta have it. It's gotta be this way. I gotta have this, God. And if I don't get to have what I want to have, if I don't get to have it, well, I'll just go look somewhere else and get it. And we thus join them in whoring after our own private play toys, creating our own idols. We do this. We have this. We just call them different names than Baals and Asheroth. They're too stubborn. They don't want to let go of them. They need to let go. They don't want to. So verse 20. The anger of the Lord. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he said, because this people, because they've transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. Here's the reason. In order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. Let's see. Let's test them. 
Will they be faithful? Or will they only be faithful if they get what they want? So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and He did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Every single military conflict in the book of the Judges, every single one, does not involve a conquest of new territory. During the campaign of Joshua, he beat most of the people back. There were still some parts of the land that they hadn't taken, but every single military encounter in the book of Judges, they're playing catch-up, right? One step backward, one step forward. One step backward, one step forward. One step backward, one step forward. They're, they're never actually taking any extra land. Not, not a time. Literally, just, just on repeat. And so... God is going to test His people. The, the, the same word is used in Genesis 22.1. The same word. Where God will test the faith of Abraham by asking him to sacrifice his son, his only son, Isaac, whom he loves. And God, God tests His people sometimes. Church, I think the real question for us is are we going to pass the test? And I hate to say this, church, but many of us we don't pass the test and we just we retake it over and over and over again because we're stubborn. And the problem is that only hurts us. It's the issue. And he goes on to say in verse 23, so the Lord left those nations not driving them out quickly and he did not give them in the hand of Joshua. A little insight here. Why did Joshua not successfully take all the land that God had promised. Well, there's layers of reasons, but one of the reasons is presented here in verse 23. One of the reasons Joshua did not fully conquer all the land is because the nation that came after Joshua, they were not simply going to inherit the blessings, the rewards of a, pre- of a previous generation's faith. The generation, the subsequent generation after Joshua, were not simply going to ride the spiritual coattails of their ancestors. That's one of the reasons that they didn't take all the land during and in the book of Joshua. That their faith, it needed to be their own, right? Not mom's faith, not dad's faith, your faith. Right? Choose today whom you'll serve. I don't care what happened last summer or spiritual emphasis week. I care what's happening right now. What's going on right now in your life? So that's what the narrator's getting at. You're not going to write anyone's spiritual coattails. God's going to test you and God's going to see if you're faithful. Are you going to be faithful? Well, I grew up in a Christian home. Don't care. Like, I don't care about your background. I don't care that you grew up in a Christian home. Like, where are you in your walk with God right now? Are you walking with Him right now? Because you can't rest in the success of your parents' faith any more than you can in the faith or in your past spiritual accolades. That's why I did not let Joshua fully take the land. Because the new the generation coming after them, their faith would need to be their own faith. They're not going to ride those coattails. And so I'm going to test the people. They're being really stubborn. They're not letting go of things. I'm going to test them. What happens? Well, there we are. We're walking, and there's a pothole there. Maybe I'll be okay if I step in the pothole. Let's just see. Pothole, boom, 
fall flat on my face. Okay. Failed that test, right? Failed it. That didn't go so well. So I'll cone it off. All right. There's my reminder, right? Don't step in a pothole. Right? Pretty, pretty straightforward. Don't step in a pothole. You step in a pothole, you fall flat in your face. And then we come and we walk and... Oh, yeah, there's the pothole I stepped in and fell flat in my face. Oh, I combed it off, too, right? I've got all these reminders. i got people speaking truth into my life. Like, nope, that guy, he's no good for you. That's what they keep telling me. But maybe this time it'll work, right? Step in the pothole. <laughs> stupid. Yeah, sin is stupid. Sin is so stupid. It happens. It could happen to a nation. It can happen to any single one of us. And he's putting them to the test. Are they going to let go of these things? Verse 19. Throw it back up there. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Some of us are so stubborn. We literally think, maybe this time I can step in the pothole and do the same thing over and I won't fall flat on my face. And we do. And we retake the test all over again. Right? I know I shouldn't be alone with my computer, with my phone, because I, man, I just keep failing those tests all, all week long with purity. But maybe this week, maybe it'll be different. Or purity in a relationship. Or whatever the issue might be that God is convicting you of in your life. Well, there's the pothole. Maybe, maybe this time, walk around it, right? Oh, God test his people. You're not going to ride the spiritual accomplishments of your, of your parents. Your faith is going to be your own. Your obedience is going to be your own. And I'm going to put my people to the test, and I'm going I'm to put them to the test to see if they're going to be faithful to me. And that's the question for us. Will we be faithful to him? Or are we going to join with our spiritual ancestors? Oh, my prayer tonight for us is that they will not say another generation arose who did not know the Lord, who forgot, who walked away, who chose to serve and worship their own gods, they looked to all these other things to bring them joy and happiness and satisfaction and contentment when God is here saying, you can find it in me. I'm preaching to myself right now. I need to hear this as much as you need to hear this. So God, I ask that you would help us. That you would protect us. Lord, our hearts are so prone to wander, so prone to stray, so prone to leave you, so prone to forget you, especially the times in our lives where you've been so good, where you've been so compassionate, where you've been so merciful, and we walk over your grace, we stample it, we, we, just, we just stomp all over it, Lord. And so I ask that you would help us, God, that you would incline our hearts to you, that we would not be another generation gone by who forgets you. Don't let us be like them. 
Lord, may we find our joy, our happiness, our satisfaction in you. May you be our deepest longing, desire, and treasure. Protect us, God, from the Baals and the Asherahs in our own lives that we create for ourselves and that pull us and our affections away from you, God. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for bold, powerful statements like Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. No, I pray that we would not abuse your grace, that we would not trample over it, but that we would treasure it and that you would receive all praise, all glory, all honor. In your name we pray. Amen.